BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. You are not a better athlete when you're negative, when you're cruel to yourself. In fact, what we found is it decreased the activity in your cerebellum. So when you become harsh or cruel to yourself, you will actually become a little bit less coordinated. And that's where... I think athletic slumps, when you get hard on yourself on a consistent basis, then you don't perform near your potential. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Real Pod. This is an exciting week, people, because this is Mental Health Awareness Week. Yes, Mental Health Awareness Week is this week. Very important stuff, very big and exciting stuff because the conversation around mental health is so important. As you all know, it's something I'm very passionate about. And I'm sure all of you are as well because this podcast talks about mental health frequently, almost every single episode. And I'm just really grateful for this community of people who want to talk about mental health and share their stories. A lot of my guests have detailed their mental health stories. And so in the spirit of this being Mental Health Awareness Week and wanting to share with you guys a conversation that hopefully will be thought-provoking and insightful, I have brought on a elite psychiatrist. Actually, the Washington Post calls him America's most popular psychiatrist. Dr. Daniel Amen has helped millions of people change their brains and lives through his health clinics, best-selling books, products, and public television programs. He is one of America's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts. He has also authored and co-authored 70 professional articles and more than 30 books, including 
New York Times mega bestseller, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, which I have ordered and started. I didn't have time to read it all before I interviewed him, but I'm in the midst of reading it. It's incredible. And fun fact, Miley Cyrus said this book changed her life. And she actually has been working with Dr. Amen for the past 10 years. So fun fact, little good tidbit to know. Dr. Amen has appeared on numerous television shows, including Dr. Phil, Larry King, Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The View. So this is going to be an exciting conversation today. He knows everything about the brain, has had over 160,000 brain scans done on patients from 155 countries. So I could not be more excited to sit down with him, pick his brain. Yeah, pick his brain about our brains and get talking about what is really going on when we talk about mental health. So I'm really excited. Let's jump into this episode. Get prepared to learn. Turn on those brains, people, and help me welcome Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, I am excited to be here with you today. Thank you for coming on RealPod. I'm looking so forward to this. How are you today? I guess, how's your brain today? Let's start there. (laughs) My brain is good. A little jet lagged. I took my first trip. So the pandemic for me started March 10th. I have a new book out called The End of Mental Illness. And I was on a book tour and all of a sudden the world closed. (laughs) And... Last week, I took my first trip to Dallas and it was really interesting. We have a new clinic opening in Dallas and just to sort of be in the airport and watch how people react and respond was interesting, right? We're living in a historic time and I just find it all so fascinating. Was this interesting for you when everything first happened because you did you maybe feel more prepared or i wonder what effect this is going to have on humanity did you have any predictions or have you similarly been kind of this whole thing's taken you by storm as well so the night it happened for me was march 10th i was supposed to be in new york city that day and i'm in my bathroom in newport coast getting ready to go and the producer called me and said don't come they're closing new york And I remember that night writing down, mental hygiene is just as important as washing your hands. The next pandemic that's going to happen is a mental health pandemic. I mean, I just predicted it. And since then, depression has doubled in five months. There's never been a time in my life where in a five-month period, depression or anxiety disorders, agoraphobia, just skyrocket. And and it's sort of gotten worse, not better, when the societal unrest happened, triggered by the death of George Floyd, the level of mental health challenges went up exponentially. So it's almost like pandemic cubed, so pandemic squared, isolation, fear, financial losses, losing family members. I lost my dad in this whole thing. And so that led to a mental health pandemic. So when George Floyd died, it was just like a tinderbox that caused things to explode even further. And we don't have good mental health habits in this country. We are terrible at that. Disciplining our minds and taking care of our brains. And 
it's just really evident now that we need to do such a better job, which is why I wanted to come on your podcast. We, we need to do a better job of taking care of our brains and our minds. You've used the term global amygdala hijacking. Is that what you're referring to right now? Yeah, the amygdala is the part of the brain that responds to and recognizes fear. And given what has happened, as a society, our amygdala have been hijacked. And now we live with this constant sense of uncertainty. Although I love this passage from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, he's one of my favorite authors. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. My favorite book of all time is called The Great Divorce. It's about a bus ride from hell to toward heaven. It's really interesting. But in 1948, he wrote about the atomic bomb. And if you just replace COVID-19, where he writes about the atomic bomb, it's, it's just so apropos. He's like, we've always lived in a world of uncertainty. I mean, you could have lived in London in the 16th century when there was a plague every year. Or you could have lived in the 10th century where you never knew if a Viking raid would slit your throat any night. And he was like, come on, we're always living in an uncertain world. Just because the scientists have found another way yet to kill you, at least we have anesthetics where before they didn't. And it was really just this great passage that if the bomb comes or the virus comes, let it find us doing sensible and human things like learning, teaching, bathing the children. And it just put it all in perspective, which I think is so important to put this whole period of time in perspective. AKA finding a silver lining, finding a shred of optimism. Is that what you mean by perspective? Well, knowing that this is going to end. And when, when it started for me in March, because we have eight soon-to-be nine clinics, I have 250 employees, I kept telling myself, are you going to be proud of how you act and what you say and the decisions you make in September? Now, I have no idea in March that this probably is going to go on for you know, 18 months or two years, but that's the question we want to ask ourselves. Do we have the long view in mind? Does this decision fit with who I am and who I want to be? And there are all sorts of silver linings to this if you look at it, that eight out of 10 parents say they feel closer to their children. Because for the last three generations, children have been raised by two parent working families and the bond in families has been strained because people are just so busy. I watched your TED Talk, and the beginning is just like that's what's happening in our society. People are so busy, they just don't have a chance to breathe. And now we have more time to breathe. In fact, I think people are getting a little bored with all the time they have to breathe living in LA. You know, well, that automatic cuts out about 90 minutes of having us with the Los Angeles traffic. And it's like, so what do we do with this time? And from a silver lining perspective, 
I see the relationship with parents and children to actually get better in many instances. A lot of my patients are telling me that. It's interesting you bring that up. And first of all, thanks for watching my TED Talk. I know you're a busy person, so appreciate you spending some time there. But that makes me think of this love-hate relationship. At least I feel like a lot of my peers have, or at least when I was a student athlete with the demand to study and to show up at practice and to work your job and to all the energy you have to exert can feel extremely overwhelming. So when this pandemic first happened and class became super easy and everyone was just getting these passes, right, to finish up the school year and there was no practice. So I was a year removed from school, but part of me was thinking, I wonder if there's some student athletes or just college students out there that are maybe relieved that they have this pause put on everything right now so they can just kind of take a breath. But then it was almost like they functioned that way for so long, like high school, SATs, college, that we don't know what to do with nothingness. Do you see some sort of all-encompassing or unifying mental health struggle happening with adolescents and college kids, particularly as a result of COVID? You know, we were in a mental health epidemic before COVID. The incidence of teenage suicide had just skyrocketed. It's way worse after COVID because of the level of uncertainty that is surrounding this whole thing. Really working to discipline our minds just is going to become so important. But, you know, I'm just, I've never been a fan of working children so hard that they have no time to breathe. I I think that's a mistake. What I often do with my patients is I teach them to say no a lot. And so I treat a lot of people have ADD of one form or another. And the impulsivity is, yes, oh, yes, I can do that. And I have them practice in the mirror. I have to think about that (laughs) because this constant running, if you do it when you're 15 or you do it when you're 19, you'll do it for the rest of your life and you're going to burn out quickly. So leaving space is, is essential. And I was actually pretty good at balancing my life when I was a teenager, but when I decided to go to medical school, it stopped. And I became unbalanced for, goodness, probably two decades. And then I realized, well, that's just a really bad thing for me, for my relationships, for my health. And so I do an exercise with all of my patients that I love called the one-page miracle which is on one piece of paper, write down what you want. Relationships always first, because we're a bonded species. We are not polar bears. We don't do well in isolation. So what do you want in your relationships? What do you want in work or school? What do you want for your money? And what do you want for your physical, emotional, and spiritual health? What do you want? So most businesses have business plans. Most people have no plans. And so uh, I, it's called the one-page miracle because when my patients do this, it changes everything in their life because then you ask yourself, does this fit? 
if I say yes to this, does it fit with the goals I have for my life? And I have these goals in a balanced way. That's how you prevent burnout because people go, oh, well, I want to be this great athlete or I want to get into graduate school or I want to. That They become so focused that their life becomes unbalanced, which then can lead to big mental health problems. I want to dive into this goal setting because it is something people talk about a lot. I thought of the word manifestation when I heard about, you know, writing what you want on paper. But I think where people can get caught up is I was really achievement goal oriented throughout high school, college. I got to go to USC. I got to be on the volleyball team. I got to start. We got to win. And I had all these goals. And I remember as my mental health issues started to develop, I was sitting in therapy one day and my therapist was like, what if you don't start? What if this doesn't happen? Then what? And we sat there and for like 20 minutes just explored my life and the repercussions of my goal not happening. And I realized, oh my gosh, like I'll still live. My parents will still love me. I'll still have a wedding one day. Like it's not the end of the world. So how do we set goals and work towards them, but not beat ourselves up when our route changes path or if we decide we want to do something else? So there's a great book I love called Loving What Is by my friend Byron Katie. And it's it's ultimately setting a direction for yourself. But I've treated Olympic athletes. I mean, people that have won multiple gold medals. And once they get the goal, they get depressed because they don't have that thing in front of them. And so it's being excited about the journey rather than, oh, I didn't get into medical school or I didn't start because not everybody's gonna. And, but can you still be proud of yourself rather than be cruel to yourself? And when, if I don't get this, then I'm a failure. It's a lie and it's cruel. And so I spend a lot of time getting my patients to talk to themselves as a good big sister would talk to them or a good parent would talk to them, which is loving, it's just encouraging, but it's not cruel. And, you know, for our athletes, it's like treating this professional golfer now. And it's like, who's the best coach you ever had? And she described him and he totally wasn't cruel. And I'm like, you're so much meaner to yourself where I want you to be a good coach and be uplifting because it's sort of not, it's going to be hard for you to be a good partner or a good mom or a good dad because of the nonsense that's going on in your head. I love that. So an emphasis on the process and being happy and knowing all that work is not going to go to waste if the result doesn't come because it's all a part of the experience you're having. And it's tough. It's it's easy to say tough in the moment to be okay with it when you do lose. You are not a better athlete when you're negative, when you're cruel to yourself. In fact, what we found is it decreased the activity in your cerebellum. So let me geek out just for a second. Your brain is about three pounds. It's 
incredibly soft, and yes, it's complicated, but there's a part in the back bottom part of your brain called the cerebellum, which is Latin for little brain. It's about 10% of the brain's volume, but it has half the brain's neurons. I think of it like the central processing unit in the brain, and it's critically important the front half of it's involved in motor coordination. So you being a good athlete, your cerebellum has to work right. And when I did a study of negativity, that negative thoughts dropped the activity in the cerebellum. So when you become harsh or cruel yourself, you actually become a little bit less coordinated. And that's where I think athletic slumps, when you get hard on yourself on a consistent basis, then you don't perform near your potential. And so I'm not a pie in the sky, positive thinking sort of person. I'm just not. I'm an accurate thinking sort of person. So there's a verse in the New Testament I like a lot, uh, John 8.32, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth is, if you don't make the team, or if you don't win, you're going to breathe and it's going to be okay unless you attack yourself. And so, yes, I want you to perform at a high level. I want you to do your absolute best with kindness rather than with cruelness. I'm glad you just shared a scientific, concrete, physical result of that negative talk because from the surface level, someone like me can look back and say, okay, when we lose a game, if I go in the locker room and I pound my locker and I'm pissed off and I don't talk to my parents and I skip the dinner, like any person can think that's doing nothing for no no one. I mean, the game happened, we should move on. But to know that actually when you're doing that thing, there's a physical effect happening, like you just said in your brain, I think just hits home even farther because you know there's a physical effect. Which brings me to this question I've been really wanting to ask you. Why does reframing the conversation from mental health to brain health change everything? So I've been a psychiatrist just about 40 years. And from the moment I decided to become a psychiatrist, I've hated the term mental illness. It shames people. It's stigmatizing. And it's wrong. At Amen Clinics, we look at the brain. So, so I think that's one of my claims to fame is we built the world's largest database of brands related to behavior. We have 160,000 scans on people from all over the world. And the scans taught me most psychiatric illnesses are not mental health issues at all, but rather they are brain health issues that steal your mind. Get your brain right, and then your mind will follow. And psychiatry in general hasn't decreased stigma one bit uh, in the last 40 years. And it breaks my heart. And we're getting mental illness, mental health issues are getting so much attention now, but it's really the wrong attention. When Sandy Hook happened, do you remember the massacre at Sandy Hook, this elementary school 
in Connecticut where Adam Lanza, an autistic boy who was obsessed with weapons, went to the school and murdered all those children. President Obama came on television and he said, we need more money for mental health care. And my first thought is, oh, great. Almost all of these school shooters, virtually all of them, have had mental health treatment. So more money for doing the same thing is going to get us more of what we have, which is a nightmare, making diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological data. It's why psychiatry has sort of a bad reputation among doctors. We need a completely different paradigm. I got to scan Kip Kinkle, who murdered his mom and dad, and then he went to his high school in Springfield, Oregon, and shot 25 people. And if you look at his brain, it's so damaged. And he had been seeing psychiatrists, taking medication, and no one knew that he really had a toxic-looking brain where if we worked on finding out why it's toxic and then fixing it, odds are that bad thing wouldn't have happened. And so I've been on this crusade to change the discussion from mental illness to brain health issues. And quite frankly, nobody wants to see a psychiatrist. Nobody really wants to be diagnosed with a mental illness, but everybody wants a better brain. So what if mental health was really brain health? I trained in Hawaii. That's where I did my child psychiatry training. And Hawaii, what many people don't know, is an Asian culture. It's like two-thirds of the population is either Chinese or Japanese. And Asian cultures are shame-based, so they often don't go and see mental health practitioners until they're really sick because they don't want to bring shame upon their family. Yet at the same time, those same families will do anything they can to give their children an advantage in school. And so I think, well, what if mental health was brain health? Then they would want better brains. And ultimately, that's my hope for psychiatry and psychology to really change course to become brain health specialists. Because with a better brain, you're less anxious. With a better brain, your mood is better. With a better brain, you're happier. The interesting thing about that reframing as well is the brain is a physical part of us. So it's almost like, obviously, physical health has more respect and receives more treatment and care than mental health because it's invisible. And I think mental health sometimes is like, this floating thing in our minds in space. So to take mental health and say that's living in this physical part of your body, the brain, and that part of your body is damaged, and I can see it's damaged through these scans, I think gives a level of credibility to people who are injured and suffering from brain issues. Whereas, you know, the mental health discussion receives so much stigma because people think it's excuses. They think you're over-exaggerating. I wanted to follow up when you talked about that boy who killed his parents. How is that brain becoming damaged? Is this childhood trauma? Is this, because I'm imagining like wear and tear, right? Hitting your head. But what are things that damage a brain? And maybe what are the most common things that damage everyone's brains, not just people who 
you know, murder their parents. <laughs> well, I also did the big NFL study when the NFL was sort of lying, they had a problem. And one of the reasons I did the study, it was like every month you heard about an NFL player with domestic violence or killing themselves. And, you know, there was the NFL way of suicide, which is basically shoot yourself in the chest so you can donate your brain to science. And so the first way, if you said, hey, Daniel, single most important thing you've learned from 160,000 scan, mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives. And nobody knows about it because they go see mental health professionals who don't ever look at the brain. And I think it's the first thing I learned is the brain is soft about the consistency of soft butter. The skull is really hard with multiple sharp bony ridges, damage the brain and you damage someone's happiness. You damage their impulse control. I saw a patient recently, he was depressed ever since he was a child. And then he got into substance abuse to be less depressed. And that obviously didn't help. And when I looked at his scan, clearly had traumatic brain injury. I mean, it was just like so clear. And I'm like, do you ever have a head injury? And he said the lore in his family was when he was a baby, he fell down a flight of stairs. And that one episode could have literally changed the trajectory of his life. Being anoxic, having a lack of oxygen, either from a near drowning episode or having the cord wrapped around your neck at birth or being born blue for whatever reason. You know, the, the day of our lives that is the most dangerous is the day we are born. And so having a birth injury, have been exposed to toxins, like you're growing up in a home that had a flood and there was mold exposure, um, being bitten by a deer tick and having Lyme disease. There, there are just so many things that can cause the brain to go wrong and, and really understanding that. And the most important thing is nobody loves their brain. <laughs> so we let children hit soccer balls with their head. And I don't know if you know, but it's actually much worse of an idea for little girls than it is for little boys. With females, 90% of their IQ is in the front part of their brain, where for boys, it's more widely distributed. So a frontal lobe injury, and if you're playing volleyball at a very high level, having a volleyball spiked into your forehead is not an uncommon event. Or if you're a cheerleader and you're a flyer, getting dropped is not uncommon, but can just be so devastating. Well, what's the difference? Because I grew up playing soccer. I have taken that exact ball to my face. Do I have a stronger skull? Did I luckily get the brain bounce in, a, in the right way? Because there are so many people on a daily basis that are hitting and bumping their heads, but then some people are having these damaging effects and others aren't. So what's the breakdown there? So I came up with this concept many years ago called brain reserve. So what's the reserve in your brain that determines who walks away from that concussion unharmed and who is significantly disabled? And we don't know, because we haven't looked at your brain yet, is 
part of the anxiety you struggled with because of four concussions you had, or is it because you inherited it and you were under too much stress? See, without looking, how would we really know? But I often use this example. Let's take two soldiers, put them in a tank, and expose them to the same explosion, same angle, same forces, everything. One of them walks away unharmed, the other one's permanently disabled. Why? It depends on the brain they brought into the accident. So if one, their parents did not use drugs, ate reasonably well, when they conceived you, well, you're more likely to have more reserve. If your mom ate well, took her vitamins, was not terribly stressed, you have more reserve than the mom who didn't really want to be pregnant, who's in a conflicted relationship, who's drinking or using drugs. And a lot of parents, I go, oh, I stopped as soon as I found out I was pregnant. Well, people find out they're pregnant at about six to eight weeks in, which the brain actually starts developing week three. So a lot of people were actually exposed to drugs, alcohol, cigarette smoking before, and nobody admits to it because everybody knows that's sort of a bad thing. And growing up, did you grow up in an unpredictable, alcoholic, scary environment? Or did you grow up where, you know, you had both parents and they liked you and they fed you well and gave you educational opportunities. So all of those things go into when you have that exposure to the blast or the car accident or the concussion, what's the level of reserve you have in the brain, which is why I'm always trying to get my patients to get more reserve by eating right and exercising, taking their supplements, because all of us have bad things happen, right? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. The people who thrived during a pandemic had more reserve than the people who were vulnerable. We've talked about some extreme circumstances, right? Like flooding or falling down a set of stairs when you were three years old. What are some simple everyday things that humans do that are damaging the brain? Is it, I just watched The Social Dilemma. Does it have to do with screen time? Does it have to do with not being outside? Can you list off a few, not to scare our listeners, but just to caution us about how many things on a daily basis affect our brain health? So in the end of mental illness, one of the big ideas in that book is if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it, if it's headed to the dark place, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And this really teaches us what to avoid and what to do. And so the mnemonic I have for those 11 risk factors is called bright minds. So for example, B is for blood flow. Low blood flow is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease and is associated with depression and ADHD and schizophrenia. So it lowers blood flow to the brain. Caffeine. Nicotine, any form of heart disease, hypertension, and not exercising. If you want to increase blood flow to your brain, exercise, critical. Just try to do it where you're not hitting your head. Beets. So there's certain foods that increase blood flow. Cayenne pepper, oregano, rosemary, certain supplements like ginkgo. 
if you have high blood pressure, any form of heart problem, make sure you treat it effectively. The R is retirement and aging. When we stop learning, our brain starts dying. But there are things that accelerate brain aging, like having high iron levels. So there are a lot of labs I think people should get. And you should know your iron. For females, often they have low iron because of their menstrual cycles and losing blood. But too high promotes aging. The I is inflammation. As a society, we're inflamed because of the processed foods we eat. And 97% of us have low omega-3 fatty acid levels. So taking fish oil and getting rid of most of the processed foods will be really helpful. G is genetics, but we think about that wrong. Genes are not a death sentence. They should be a wake-up call. So in my family, I have heart disease. I don't have heart disease, but I know it's my risk factor. So I'm consciously doing things to prevent them. H is head trauma, like we talked about, T are toxins, and yes, drugs and alcohol. And I'm sort of horrified that people sort of see marijuana as innocuous, but it's not. Teenagers who smoke or use marijuana regularly have a higher incidence of anxiety, depression, and suicide in their 20s. I published a study on a thousand marijuana users. Every area of their brain was lower than non-users. Sort of horrifying. Also, other toxins. So mercury is a toxin, so you have to be careful about not having too much sushi, too much tuna. Amalgams, like dental amalgams, can really be toxic. The FDA just came out with a new report showing that for vulnerable populations, they should avoid them. Sort of makes sense. Why would you put mercury in your head when it's a known neurotoxin? And general anesthesia, like very few people actually know that, that when you go under general anesthesia for vulnerable people can actually lower overall activity in their brain. The second M or something I call mind storms, abnormal electrical activity in the brain. It's why the ketogenic diet often helps people feel emotionally more stable because it calms down that abnormal electrical activity. The second eye, which was prophetic, is immunity and infections with COVID-19. We know COVID-19 can impact your brain, but other things like Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, herpes can impact brain function. N is neurohormones. So you want to get your hormones checked on a regular basis. D is diabetes. 72% of Americans are now overweight. 42% of us are obese. We have to be much more serious getting to healthy weights and as sleep. When I listen to your TED Talk, I'm like, this girl's not sleeping. And <laughs> That was something I had on, on topic to talk to you about is stressing the importance of sleep to people like me. Yeah, no, I used to think I was special because I could get by on four hours of sleep at night. And then after reading the research, I realized, oh, I was just stupid. Because when you sleep, your brain cleans or washes itself and really getting it ready for the next day. It's taken out the trash at night. Plus, it's consolidating what you learned the day before. And when you're not sleeping, it skyrockets depression. 
teenagers who sleep just one hour less than their peers have a higher incidence of depression and suicide. So making sleep a priority, not taking the gadgets to bed, really getting in a right rhythm, ritual to support sleep is just really critical. I'm glad you brought up your point about drugs because it is something that has become so social. And I've never talked really about, I don't want to say my drug use because it doesn't exist, but I guess my experience with drugs because I was terrified to ever try cocaine or Molly at a concert. Like I was always the absolutely not because I was like, I just know that I'm going to be the girl that takes the one pill that's laced with something or my brain's not prepared and I die or I become impaired. And I just really don't think this party is worth potentially losing my entire life. And I know that's so extreme. And of course, I have friends who, you know, they don't think that way, but I'm right on par with you, Dr. Amen. <laughs> uh, Victoria, that's such an important point because there's this huge study on longevity that they did at Stanford over 90 years, looking at what goes with success, health, and longevity. And it wasn't the happy people that live the longest. In fact, the don't worry, be happy people died the earliest from accidents and preventable illnesses. Conscientiousness was the one trait associated with longevity. You need some anxiety. So my job as a psychiatrist is not to get rid of your anxiety. For so many of my patients, it's actually to raise their anxiety so that when someone gives them Molly, they can go, people have died from this. Is this really worth it to feel high and be a bit out of control? And I'm actually with you, you know, I mean, I grew up as a teenager in the 60s when, you know, it was drugs and free love. And I always thought it was the dumbest thing. Why am I going to take something and lose control of my mind? Because that's yes. like most I important out of part of me is no, for what <laughs> reason would I do that? I just thought it was not the sign of intelligent life. and. Uh, so I honor your decision and I wish more young people would, would make it. Yeah. And this might make you laugh, but that was one of my big reasons was obviously death and fear of hurting myself. But secondly, I was like, why would I want to take something that could potentially make my everyday life seem 10 times worse than this one hour on this pill? I'm just making the rest of my life like permanently going to be worse than what I've ever like. I don't want to I don't want to simulate a peak experience that I can't withhold. So I was like, I'm, I'm OK with thinking this is the best things can get. <laughs> well, and there's so many other ways to be happy. Right. You know, inducing it artificially won't last. And potentially, I mean, I've treated thousands of drug addicts, takes you down the rabbit hole of hell. It's, you know, I dedicated the end of mental illness to my two nieces who we adopted because they grew up with chronic trauma and drama from true drug addict parents. And, you know, I'm like, to the girls, they're 15 and 10. I'm like, you know, we can break the cycle. But, you know, if you use, given your genetics, you're likely to have a serious problem. If you never use, you'll never have this problem. 
And, right. you know, it's, it's just so important to have an honest discussion where, I don't know if you saw the Democratic um, presidential debates, but Cory Booker shamed Joe Biden when Joe Biden was hesitant to legalize marijuana. And he basically said, dude, are you high? Which was so disappointing to me to, this is the, this is the national discourse that if you argue against drugs, you're somehow less than of a person and you know, a United States Senator will make fun of you. I was just horrified that people are shamed for staying away from things that are hurt them. Yeah. I mean, it's, I live in, uh, we both live in California and obviously marijuana is legal. My little brother is an avid um, smoker of the tree and he thinks he would defend it, like at all costs. So I got to get him to listen to this, but I wanted to touch on the point you just made about the range of emotions. You talked about the don't worry, be happy people. I think I think of that as like toxic positivity. And I recently had on a sports psychologist, Dr. Michael Gervais, who said people who just want to be happy in life, it's, it's not realistic. And is that really what you want? Because feeling the pain, feeling love for someone, feeling like you miss someone, the range of emotions we experience as humans is natural. It's important. And I think for people listening, it's it's okay to know it, you can feel sad. You don't have to feel sadness and immediately try to bury it and wipe it away and get to happy again. We're going to have a range of emotions. And that's just a part of being human and navigating that and learning from that. So I'm glad to hear you say that range is important as well. We have been talking about a lot of things that are maybe slightly scary. And I'm sure people are listening, taking notes, trying to make sure that they keep their brains healthy. So ending with some hope. I know you have seven habits of happiness that you preach and you believe. If you want to share all seven, that would be great. If not, maybe three or four you think are really important to know, but I would love to discuss some of these habits of happiness with you. So let's do five. I have the mnemonic. So I'm actually working on a new book called Happy, the Neuroscience of Feeling Good, because it is a goal. It's what people want. And Americans are the most unhappy they have been in my lifetime. And, you know, large part because of the pandemic, but it was a problem before the pandemic and it's just getting worse. So the H is head. You got to get your brain right. Your brain is the organ of loving, learning, and feeling. So your brain is the organ of happiness. And so taking care of it by attacking each of those bright minds respecters is really important. A is attitude. And attitude really does matter. And it's something you can discipline and develop over time. We, we haven't talked about my concept yet of ants, automatic negative thoughts, the thoughts that come into your mind automatically and ruin your day. I'm a huge fan of discipline. I was in the army for 10 years as an infantry medic and then an army psychiatrist. And discipline's really important for soldiers. But nobody ever taught how to discipline their own minds. And a long time ago, I came up with this concept of ants, automatic negative thoughts, that just come into our mind automatically and ruin our day. And so the exercise is whenever you feel sad or mad or nervous or out of control, write down what you're thinking. 
And then just ask yourself if it's true. So we have to develop I have an anteater here. Oh, he's <laughs> holding an anteater stuffed animal on Zoom. That is the cutest thing. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I have a very powerful internal anteater. So when I get a bad thought, it just automatically goes, well, is that true? Can I absolutely know that that's true? So that is just critical. Because we believe these negative thoughts. I was victim to believing these terrible fears in my mind. And then I wrote them on paper and I said, this is ridiculous. But when it's in my head, it doesn't sound that ridiculous. <laughs> and, and there's nowhere in school where they actually teach you not to believe the stupidity going on in your head. <laughs> and to just evaluate, you know, I, I was in my late 20s when in my psychiatric training before I realized I didn't have to believe every stupid thing I thought. And thoughts come from all over the place. Sometimes they're based on the pizza you had the night before. And sometimes they help you and sometimes they're just downright abusive to you. So learning how to manage your mind is really critical. The P is people. Your relationships really matter. People are contagious. So watching the people you spend time with is critical. And most people think it takes two to make a relationship work. As a psychiatrist, I came to believe it really takes one and that one person is you. By how you act, you can have a positive impact on others or a negative impact. And I often, uh, you know, I get a lot of parent-child problems. And so I'm sitting with the teenager and my first question is, what do you do that makes your mom cry? Nothing. And, and if I nudge them just a little bit, they totally know how they impact the relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what do you do that makes her smile? And like with my wife, who I adore, she's my best friend, I know how to make her scream at me in under 10 seconds. I can get her so angry at me. <laughs> but I choose not to do that. And Good. <laughs> it's really taking responsibility. Am I putting out in my relationships what I want to get back? So people are so important. Purpose is critical. Why are you on the planet? Do you have a sense of meaning and purpose? And I have a lot of information on how to take care of the pleasure centers in the brain. I've been blessed to see a lot of really well-known people. And you don't, you don't want to be famous before your brain has developed. So Miley Cyrus uh, just did a... I saw that. You're her therapist. That is the coolest thing ever. Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast. And I've been helping Miley for 10 years. And, you know, she and I joke, you just never want to be famous before your brain has finished developing. <laughs> Too late for Miley. Shouldn't but, have a choice. When it wears out your pleasure centers, that's when you go to drugs or that's when you go to other addictions, uh, that you have to be very careful. And being purposeful is like that little hit of cocaine that helps you feel good but doesn't damage your brain. And then the why is you need to develop habits that last years long. And three of my favorite tiny habits, you know, the smallest thing you can do today that makes the biggest difference is when my eyes opened this morning, I said to myself, today is going to be a great day. 
I do that every morning. It's actually on the top of my to-do list. So if I don't automatically say it, my eyes automatically get there. Why? It trains me to look for what's right rather than what's wrong. Now, you can't just do that, but it sets the day up to be better. And as I go through my day, another little tiny habit, is this good for my brain or bad for it? I'm 66, and I've seen a lot of older brains, and they're not good. So if I'm not clearly invested in brain health, the effects of aging on your brain suck. So, so I know I'm in a war for the health of my brain. So I'm going to be, the more good decisions I make, the longer I'm going to have mental clarity, which is what desire right? I really don't want my children having to take my driver's license for me when I'm 85. That means I have to take care of my brain now. And before I go to bed at night, I say a prayer and then I go, what went well today? So I direct my attention and it's the coolest little exercise. I think of all of the exercises I do, it's my favorite one because I'm always finding treasure moments that happen during the day, but I forgot about. It's like I just sort of glossed over and just come up with three things that went well that day. It will set your dreams up to be more positive. You'll be more likely to go into REM sleep, which is the most restorative sleep, and feel better tomorrow. And none of that is pie-in-the-sky happy thinking, but it's mental discipline to discipline my mind to look for what's right rather than what's wrong. To put a pin in the today is going to be a great day at the top of your to-do list. And this is real pod. So just being real, there aren't there those days where you wake up and you see that and you're like, fuck that. Like, I I can't do it today. Like, no, like this, I, I can't. So when that happens, how do we get back on track? Because I have tried to do things with journals. And after two weeks, I'm like, I don't want to be organized today. Well, so let's find the little things. Uh, So I had mentioned earlier, early on in the pandemic, my mom, dad, and sister got COVID. My mom and dad ended up in the hospital. And five days later, they left. And they actually made the front page of the LA Times and the Orange County Register. But my dad really never got fully better and had some other medical things. And on May 5th, I lost him. And I remember that day, and it was a terrible day. But that night when I went to bed, because it is my habit, I went, what went well today? And part of me went, seriously, you're going to do that today? Today sucked. But it's my habit. And then I remember being there for my mom. And I remember this funny, like humorous interchange she had with the police officer. Because, you know, they always have to investigate deaths. And she said, do you think I was having an affair? Right? I mean, my mom's 88. My dad was almost 91. And the police officer was so sweet. And then I thought about the hundreds of texts I got from my friends and his friends. And I just slept like a baby that night. And so I think developing the discipline will make days better overall. Because what I want for you and what I want for me is resilience in the time of stress. And of course, there's some terrible days in our lives, 
but it all depends on where you look to determine how bad it's going to be. I have a new book coming out in uh, March called Your Brain is Always Listening. And it's about the dragons from the past that breathe fire on your emotional brain. And one of the dragons is the death dragon. And it's the one that drives, I think, the most pain because people are worried about death. And the pandemic, it's like, okay, the death dragon's now like Godzilla breathing fire around the earth. And so how do you tame the death dragon? So one of my strategies is to actually list seven good things about dying. <laughs> it was funny, I was on a huddle this morning and we had a Zoom tech problem. And one of my strategies, one of my good things about dying is I'm not going to have to deal with technology. <laughs> that sounds so dark. <laughs> and I just, you know, I have this whole list of, you know, it'll be like the first time I'll have a smoking hot body when they cremate me. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. You can find, if you can find humor in the darkness. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, one of my favorite authors, uh, she wrote a great book on death and dying. And she said it is the denial of death is actually partially responsible for people living empty, purposeless lives. Because when you believe or you act like you're going to live forever, you don't take care of the things you need to do today, especially in relationships. And so I think knowing there's an end makes today just a little bit more special. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us because I was getting chills and I was super inspired. And I have to remember if Doc Amen can remain positive through his darkest days, which are much darker than me being lazy, then I can do it too. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a joy to speak with you today. I learned so much and I really appreciate you. Thanks, Victoria. I wish you all the best. If you want to keep up with Dr. Amen, go follow his Instagram account. It's doc underscore Amen, spelt like amen, A-M-E-N. And you can also get his most recent book, The End of Mental Illness, which is on sale. And also his most popular book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life is on sale everywhere. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you are enjoying it. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at RealPod, and you can follow me at Victoria Garrett. Thank you for listening. And as always, keep it real. I'll be back next Wednesday.